Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. This episode features one of my favorite conversations. It's with director Richard Pierce. Mr. Pierce began his career as a cinematographer on classic documentaries, including Woodstock, Marjo, and Hearts and Minds. He segued into directing with the 1977 TV movie The Gardener's Son, which was part of an ongoing series titled Visions. On the feature film front, he made his mark with 1979's Heartland, starring Rip Torn, before moving on to Threshold with Donald Sutherland and Jeff Goldblum, Country with Jessica Lange and Sam Shepard, No Mercy with Richard Gere and Kim Basinger, The Long Walk Home with Whoopi Goldberg and Sissy Spacek, Leap of Faith with Steve Martin and Deborah Winger, and A Family Thing with Robert Duvall and James Earl Jones. Along the way, he learned from the best, having spent time on sets with the likes of John Huston and Milos Forman. He was on stage with Jimi Hendrix during the finale of the Woodstock concert, and with Elvis during his final tour. We discuss all of these films and experiences in a conversation filled with amusing anecdotes and insightful revelations for lovers of filmmaking. What was your introduction to the notion that I want to get into filmmaking to begin with? It's a, it's a little bit blurry, but I remember as a kid growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, when I found out that you could actually uh, go to the library and, and uh, take out a projector and a 60-millimeter short and, and project it on your wall in your room for free that it was really that it was really uh eye opening and um and so I started doing that and then you know went to a summer program at NYU but the big the big kind of moment of where the light bulb went on was when Don Pennybaker came mm. to where I was at college he was also he was also an alumnus he, and he was invited back to show films and talk about what he was doing at the time. Um, and uh, I got so excited by what he was, what he and his, and his ilk were doing in New York that um, I went, I went to see him and uh, it turned out that there was a guy leaving who I could replace. Um, so I did that. And, and so there was a, good part of a year where I was working um, for Penny Baker and Leacock in the day, and then in the evening, I would go to NYU to the film school for the graduate program. Um, And there's, I I mean, there was a wonderful group there. Uh, Marty Scorsese was in that group, and Michael Wadley was teaching cinematography there. Mm. Um, And and we all became friends. And then, and then after I left film school, I mean, after I left an, an evening at film school, I I, uh, I was backing up a friend in a bar uh, who was a singer songwriter um, in a bar in the village. So I was having a, the time of my life. Yeah. What did you observe of of Pennebaker's uh, working methods that that proved most informative to you? Well, first of all, um, I don't know whether you know about uh, the early days of of, of Penny Baker and and the development of this camera that was untethered to sound and was 
handheld and the stock, the film stocks were, you know, although black and white were um, suddenly faster and you could go, you could go anywhere, film anything without tedious lighting and um, tripods and all that. So, so it, it sort of threw documentary filmmaking into a, into a whole different mode and you could see it. And if you, if you had to have been there to realize that everything else, everything else coming out of Hollywood and uh, uh, felt very um, artificial and, mm. and um, this felt raw and real. Um, now at the time I was a, a fan of all of the films coming from Europe, the new wave, the, you know, the, the French new wave and, and Italians. And it was just felt like there was a, you know, there was, it was, it was a fantasy to think about making films like that. Um, um, and, and I actually applied for a Fulbright to go to the Centro Sperimentale di Cinematografia in Rome as a, as a student. In other words, as I left college, I was, I applied and I, it became an, I became an alternate, which means I, they didn't, they didn't pick me, but if somebody dropped out, I, I would have been picked. And I always thought that that was, I thought, I thought that Penny Baker misunderstood me as saying that I had a Fulbright <laughs> to, to go to Rome and that instead I wanted to come work for him and he was very impressed with that. <laughs> this sort of mode of shooting, Al Mazels and Penny Baker and Leacock, um, was completely uh, eye-opening for someone who just, who'd really seen more composed movies. Right. In, in retrospect, it, maybe it occurred to you at the time, uh, I mean, I romanticized that period of time in movies. Um, it seemed like the perfect time to, to, to get into that. Now, you're talking about the 70s, the famous I'm talking 1970s, about the, I'm talking, or are you talking about the, the talking documentaries about the, in the 60s? Well, I'm talking about the, the late 60s, early 70s, that whole, the, the energy yeah. of filmmaking at that time. And the sort of um, parallel energy in... in uh, you know that really doc that sort of sucked documentary young documentary filmmakers um, into a, a kind of world of turmoil. Mm. So so that I was in, you know, I was filming in Vietnam. I was filming in in the Middle East. Uh, wow. at, right at the time of the Six Day War, I was filming in Chile during Allende. Um, I, you know, I mean, I could go on and on. Civil rights uh, in the South. All of this. You know, if if you if you had um, a skill uh, like this, and you could, I mean, and you could kind of move quickly and have a knapsack full of film, uh, and and be kind of nimble, um, you could get extraordinary footage of, or or make extraordinary films even about um, a. a of what was going on at the time. And so it was really, you're right, it was really an extraordinary time to be a documentary filmmaker and cameraman. Yeah, and when I think about the the magic of the documentary form, uh, I mean, I think of something like, uh, for instance, something like Give Me Shelter, which 
which right. you you know started off as one thing. We That's think right. we think we're making this movie, and just the the nature of life unfolding, it morphs into something completely different. That, you know, it's funny. I, just to, just to, not to interrupt you for a second. No, go ahead. I've long quoted Al Mazel's as saying something that's directly relevant to what you're saying, and that is, he's, at least this is my memory of what he said. Um, if you're still making the same movie at the end that you were at the beginning, you haven't been paying attention. Mm. And uh, this now his do- his daughter has said he's never said this and no one no one has supported me that this was something that he said sadly but uh it's true yeah and he and he lived it the uh it's interesting too because i i forget which filmmaker said it but i heard a filmmaker years ago say even in a narrative film in some ways your your narrative film it's a documentary of the day you shot this and this and this it's a document of that day so and that, well, that that's e- interesting yeah that's an interesting idea yeah i know that i know that when you know the grass is always greener and when you're when you're surrounded by um trucks huge semis full of equipment and lights and 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 trailers and actors and so forth extras um you you long for the day that you're just a camera on your feet uh sort of following some extraordinarily fast moving and, and fascinating um set of characters and events you just it, it's just rom- it's a very romantic idea that stays with you that that uh it that sense that somehow it's never going to be it's never going to repeat itself mm. and, and you better get it because it's only happening once Whereas <laughs> you feel like a lot of the creative work in making narrative films happens before this, you know, everybody gets to the set. You know what I mean? Right. It's still, yeah. <clears throat> and I would imagine it's even more pronounced in one of these <clears throat> huge budget Hollywood movies where I'm sure you actually feel like you've made the movie before you've made the movie. I mean, you have that's, to, yeah. That's right. You have to, you have to have in a way, you have to have, you have to have, it's not that you storyboard everything but you have to have done the equivalent of of sort of imagined it uh they call it previs now cuz it's a lot of it's done with technology but you have to have kind of uh made this leap into imagining it so that um uh the tendency and i don't know if this is true with other directors you've talked to is to is to is to feel like in the, there's a whole new generation of of directors, and I'm talking about within my lifespan, for whom the movie is really all made in their head, and so the only problem is that you have to. I mean, if you could, if the filmmaker could make it herself or himself, th- that would be ideal. But you have to you have to pass it on to a lot of people, and you're always having to deal with their um, eccentricities and so forth, and it's a, whereas whereas in the old days, I'm talking about the the grand the great old days with with when directors like John Huston and Robert Altman, these are guys who seem to be just throwing a party with their friends yes. and effortlessly yeah. uh, presided 
over a party that everybody was having a great time, and then magically a wonderful movie emerges, but without without any sense that they like. I remember once visiting the set of John Huston because my friend Fred Murphy was the DP, and he invited me to come. And it was the, I think it was the last John Huston film, The Dead, and he. Uh, so I got to sit with John Huston in, in in his wheelchair or behind him, and he was in a wheelchair and he was on oxygen and he was looking at a monitor, and and uh, he called Fred over after after a scene had been rehearsed by the AD, and uh, he looked at Fred and he said, "How are we going to shoot this, Fred?" <laughs> <laughs> and Fred, who was young and you know, uh, and just in awe of John Huston, just was just struck dumb, thinking that John Huston was asking him how he was going to shoot this. But they worked it out, and and uh, Fred got to sort of try out some ideas on John Huston. But it was as if John Huston hadn't had, it, the thought hadn't crossed his mind until it until it did. Uh, it also speaks to a supreme kind of confidence. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a couple of points that come up from what we've just been discussing. One is the obvious connection between uh, working in the documentary form, being a cinematographer in that form, and and recognizing a moment of spontaneity that you need to capture, and how that translates into being a narrative film director. And it almost feels like... Yeah, trying to kind of capture the... uh, whatever little spontaneity that you can find is like lightning in a bottle. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just, it, 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 and in big films with large crews and large prep and all that, uh, to still have uh, spontaneity is a, is really a um, a triumph. If, if if a director can create a set where there's still still spontaneity, actors love it, uh, crew loves it, and the film's better for it. Mm. And, and I'm, you know, as a as a director or, or filmmaker, you're very concerned with making the day, and so to allow any kind of yeah. elements of spontaneity in that restriction. Or you have somebody like a Stanley Kubrick, you know what I mean, who seems to be determined to, uh, and he's an incredible filmmaker, but he seems yeah. to be determined to bleed out any sense of spontaneity by the hundredth take, you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, and, and, and yet, you know, he's on some kind of quest for the perfect, for the, for, to realize this, this, this idea that he has in his head. It's a, it's, you know, you're, and then on the other, on the other extreme, you have John Houston. How are we going to shoot this, Fred? Mm. You know, what? What are, what what are we going to do with this scene? I, I'll tell you one more John Huston story from that day. Please. Um, so they were rehearsing a scene that was a, a sort of a dancing scene, uh, and I can't remember now. The film was a little dim in my memory, but uh, it was a, it was a complicated scene, and and uh, what's her name? Uh, his daughter. Angelica. Um, Angelica was was dancing with uh, a man. A man named John. Okay, let's, and he was one of the leads in the movie. It's not coming back, but I'll just tell you the story quickly. John is now the camera is now rolling, and the shot, you know, is is in play, and John Houston is behind this little kind of screen with a monitor on oxygen in a wheelchair, and he's shouting mm. at John. 
He's shouting at him as the scene is playing out on camera. And he's shouting at him, more engaging, John. <laughs> and I've always, for years, I thought, oh, my God, this breaks every rule, every rule that I ever learned as a director. Um, talk about a result direction. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. All the things you're not supposed to do. So a, a, years, a couple of years go by, and then I, by complete chance, I, I had lunch with Angelica Houston. I think we were discussing some project or something. And I couldn't resist telling her this story and telling her just this was just an eye-opening. And she said, oh, yes, he hated this actor. And he just, every <laughs> chance he could, he was just ribbing him. He was giving him unplayable directions. He was just constantly trying to, to throw him off, his, off stride. And I thought, oh, boy, that was, those were the days. Yeah. It's also just, I mean, by, that was his final film, but obviously by that time, filmmaking was just in his blood. I mean, he could, he could do it like no one else. I mean, it's just, it becomes a part of your DNA, I would imagine. Also, you could, you could imagine that, you know, that sort of young director's kind of uh, very intense anxiety that every take is you know, mm. critical to the, the success of the film, and it often is. Um, John Huston didn't care about, you know, kind of messing up his own take if he was having some fun at, at the expense of this actor. So it, it's almost a generational thing, and I think you're right. I think it's also about age and confidence and, mm. and uh, somebody who doesn't, he doesn't have anything to lose. While we're on the subject, um, when you're directing actors... You talk about the the right way to 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 give a direction. Is it all about giving them something that's actually playable? Uh, yeah, some, yeah, that's right. And that's and that's sort of another whole conversation. But um, but the the idea of a result direction is you're 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 telling the actor what you want to see, what you want to hear, what you want to feel, and the actor's having to kind of step out of the moment and and uh, try to figure out what it is that you're asking them to do and then look at their performance with an eye toward realizing what it is you want to see, hear, or do, right? And the first thing that does is break the connection mm. uh, with the other actor and it also makes the performance self-conscious. So you, you are shooting yourself in the foot from the first moment that you give a result direction. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also the job of uh, being a director, I would imagine, being a personality wrangler, kind of making sure that this whole team works as a cohesive unit. Yeah. Um, although I remember being on a set with Milos Foreman and, and learning a lot, um, partly because he almost never spoke to actors and he felt like most of his job was done uh in the editing room or in the casting office. Uh -huh. In other words, that he would shoot um, under duress often and, and, and exhaustively shoot in order to have as many possibilities for the editing room because the real fun was in the editing room. And he didn't speak to actors. And there, I, I guess this is sort of, he's sort of famous for that. And I were, there were many times when I wish I could, like me, let's say, 
my English not so good. Step away from the problem of having something to say that really would help. What was the set you were on with him? Well, I was one of, I was a kind of um, uh, cameraman uh, in when Hair was shot in New York. Oh, and I yeah. I was one of, one of the cameramen on Hair. And it was really peripheral to the film, but but it was really fun to see um, somebody I consider a master at work. And my ed- my wife is an editor, and she edited Cuckoo's um, Nest. Hair right? and Cuckoo's Nest. And oh. she had, had kind of a relatively um, successful creative relationship with Milos Forman uh, doing a bunch of films that really, um, his love of editing and her love of editing, they just they just were, they, were, had, they had a great time. Mm. Cuckoo's Nest is the movie that made me fall in love with movies. Yeah. When I was a young and, and you know what was interesting about Cuckoo's Nest also, and I, I learned this kind of back in the day, when everybody was worrying about television, right? They would they would they would say, "Oh God, this! How do you try? How do you how do you put a feature film with a you know wide screen and you know Dolby mm. sound? How do you put it on a on a television screen in somebody's home and have it survive?" Well, what? For the most part, that was true. It was kind of a hard transition um, to imagine films being screened on television. It's just like imagining films being screened on iPhones right now. Right. Um, but the the fact of the matter is Cuckoo's Nest was one of those miracle films. The way he shot it, it, it plays absolutely as powerfully on a TV set as it does in a the theater. Yeah, you don't miss it. you don't miss it. a trick, and it's just the way he shot it. Well, the power of it was so uh, obvious to me. I, I actually, as a as a junior high school student, I would tape movies on this Chicago station overnight. They play movies at like two o'clock in the morning, and I yeah, tape it, tape right. it, and watch you, it the next day. So <laughs> even with commercial breaks and censored and all that stuff, I recognized that just the power of that film and it. It really got me started in my obsession with it. But we're here to talk about you uh, and, and your films. Well, you're right about that. Yeah, and I think that's a lot of that's there's a lot of people that feel feel that connection to that film. Yeah, absolutely. Your your relationship with Wadley is that what led to your involvement in Woodstock? Yeah, we were part of a small group of people that were all, um, you know, kind of veterans of this new way of shooting, um, and. Um, um, when when Wadley when Michael Wadley bid bid on the Woodstock, he was bidding against Al David Mazels, uh, and really, you know, who would have thought? But in fact, uh, I don't know the full story. But um, when he ended up with the bid, he he, he then called us all a, a sort of little core group together and. And uh, one of our number was David Myers, who was, by the time we shot Woodstock in 69, he was 60 years old. And he was famously a guy, the only guy uh, among all of this core group who wasn't interested in the music at all. He wasn't interested in being on stage. I was so, I was like a, like a pig in shit to be <laughs> on stage, you know, for three days and nights. Uh, with some of the greatest musicians of the time, uh, and Michael, I, I mean, um, 
David Myers was just wandering in the fields, having a time of his life doing great sequences, and the film would have been nothing without his without his eye. Um, and it was a lesson that I learned is is that when everybody's looking one way, <laughs> be careful. <laughs> you should be looking the other. Yeah, because Woodstock, as much as what was happening on stage, it was a story of those kids out right. there, the audience, why they were there. It really was, yeah. and, it, and it took yeah. the whole three days and nights for that to become clear. I mean, for one thing, we got the New York Times with a cover photograph that said 500,000 people, mm. and we had, we just didn't have any idea because you, when you're in the in the eye of the hurricane, you don't you just see you know a big crowd out there, but you're focused on the music and on the personalities and on the on the storm that's coming that's going to electrocute everybody on stage. And, yeah. you know what I mean. Whatever it is. Um, yeah, I just did a series of interviews about Woodstock, and, and I uh, did you. I talked to uh, because we're doing the series where we're doing the films of 1970. We're going week by week and exploring every single one, I and um, <clears throat> and I talked to people who were actually there. And there was one guy who was there with his girlfriend, and they got there really early. So they were in something like the third row. And I said, when did you realize that 500,000 people were standing behind you? And he said, I had no idea. He said, I, yeah. I, I went to the porta potty, and I was like, what the <laughs> Where did this That's come right. from? It's just extraordinary. Right. What are the memories that are, are most deeply kind of seared into your brain from that experience? Well, one was had an interesting uh, uh, follow-up, and that is – the way it worked is you'd film all night and then you'd try to get a little rest before about a 10 o'clock start again or something like that. So sometime, sometime between 7 and 10, you you would try to get a little sleep, and, and but you couldn't. You were so wired. Um, so uh, David Myers, speaking of David Myers, 60-year-old David Myers, and I were just kind of in the shade under uh, the equipment um, trailer. And we were just trying to kind of come down from the excitement of the night before and we're talking away or whatever and and uh he just picked his camera up it had been lying there in the grass and he just picked his camera up without saying anything and just sighted it like a gun and fired off a long shot right Mm. while talking while talking to me (laughs) and then put the camera down and i and i didn't realize it but at the time he was taking a shot of two people who were taking off their clothes and making love in the fields, you know, in the distance. It was a telephone shot. Okay, so this became a court case that David Myers was eventually embroiled in. Um, And the court case, uh, (laughs) surprisingly, the two people were not claiming invasion of privacy, which would have been a perfectly appropriate uh, claim. Uh, in any court of law, they were claiming that they were, as I understand it, they were claiming that they were um, actors in a film and wanted to be paid as actors in a film. <laughs> and the and the and the case was eventually thrown out because of that claim, um, because it was ridiculous on the face of it. Whereas they had a they had an ironclad case that they that nobody got release and no one got their permission no one asked their permission and the shot was taken um yeah but that's not what you're asking let, let me just say what you're asking is a, is a memory of what it was like to be at, in the eye of the hurricane sure and that memory was uh the final morning um 
um, with um, the Star Spangled Banner, oh, yeah. you know, um, being played to uh, mostly a wasted audience, um, but one of the most extraordinary. Shooting that, leaning back against a speaker that was pumping that out to 500,000 people and and holding a shot and feeling like I'm right at I'm getting this and I'm getting it I'm getting it right um will will stay with me for the rest of my life. Mm. And Hendrix Hendrix you know the the irony in all this is that the people who were the big shots always wanted to be to, to close out the evening. They had no idea the closing out the evening would be would be 6 in the morning. <laughs> well most people and, had thinned out by And most then. people were asleep. Yeah. <laughs> or or yeah. And so there's Jimi Hendrix playing to an audience that was essentially somnambulant if they were if they're even with their eyes were even open and yet he, he made history. He did. And it's must have it, it, I'm sure it felt like such a gift to actually be in the presence of that but you know you you brought us a gift by preserving that on film. So that's uh, do you ever consider I you know I was a part of that major cultural event that still resounds 50 years later I mean that must be very satisfying Well you know what you you never know any uh you never look I remember thinking to myself the when I arrived by motorcycle there was a complete rainstorms mud everywhere as you may or may not remember, that, that it looked like um, the traffic was miles, miles backed up. It looked like a, a makings of a disaster. And and uh, you know, if 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 it was me, if somehow somebody had said, "Well, Dick, you have to make the decision: are you are we going to go forward with this, or are we going to just consider to cut our losses?" <laughs> I would have said, "Cut, cut your losses." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I was dead wrong. So I had no idea that yeah. not only not only was the mess part of the the genius of it all, but and the chaos. Like Michael Wadling, you know, we all cut the cord um, with any notion that somebody was going to be directing us by earphones. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and when we were shooting the music, and yet the shooting all kind of coordinated itself and. Uh, it was just one of those magical things. Um, again, I would have, I would have said, this is, you know, we're barely holding this together. Right. And the event, and the event, never became an Altamont, but could have. Uh -huh. I mean, it, it wasn't that much lo long, long, longer after. Plus, it must, it, it must have ended that. that yeah, it really did it. in that era, yeah. and there were. It was so, you know, I think about, you know, the moon landing. Manson, Woodstock, Altamont, and those things oh, happen like oh. in a cluster. I know. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. an extraordinary time in American history at that time. Uh, but it must have felt like kind of like a, a military operation to get to it, get the... It wasn't. That was the irony. Huh. It wasn't at all. It was It was just like, c c bring your camera. We're going to have fun. Uh, where do you want to be? That was it. That's that the direction. Wow. I, I want to be on the stage left. Okay, that's great. Uh, you know, I want to be able to look out across um, somebody at 500,000 people and get that get that electricity. That's it. That's the shot for me. Mm. Um, and and uh, I got it. Yeah. I mean, you know. So so you know what? Uh, 
it didn't. It should have been a military operation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, in a, you know, if if Marty Scorsese, who was there, as you know, but yeah. um, if Marty Scorsese had been doing it like he eventually did um, the movie, what's it called, with the band, um, the Last the Waltz, yeah, the Last Waltz. Um, where every camera operator is on earphones and every move is being uh, essentially directed, um, it would have been a different film. Yeah, but the way it, I guess it, it has. And I to love do the Last Waltz. I do too, but but <laughs> something about Woodstock. I mean, you could feel the immediacy of it. You can you, you yeah. could feel the thing growing. You're in there with it. Uh, yeah. You know. You're. I mean, the work that you did in docu- in the documentary form is extraordinary, and you're tied to. A really incredible string of movies, and if you could tell me just a little bit about your level of involvement and 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 a memory or two from these movies, I'd be most appreciative. Uh, Marjo, how how did how did that come about, and what memories stick out there? Well, no, I I don't have any kind of immediately rescuable story of Marjo. Um, it, it you know there's a there was a time where um, in and around Woodstock, for example, you know, I I would just get a call and then I would be on a plane to uh, Arkansas and okay. Elvis was doing his last concert. Mm. Uh, and uh, I would be I would be kind of put in, in just in kind of front uh, with a handheld camera uh, right next to the stage and and uh, and I remember Elvis getting upset as I would move in my shots, and he would do the, uh, the virtually the equivalent of waving me off. Um, <laughs> and and uh, you know, but it, what the experience is like is you get off a plane, you you have your rig, your camera, you you um, you're introduced to everybody, you're like you, you um, you're sh- you're sort of given a, a the best seat in the house. The concert's over. You're exhausted. You usually, there's usually a, a a kind of celebration, and then there's a motel room, and then you're back home. And it's like you you just you just have this life where you're just being you're. It's like you're like an athlete. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and that didn't last very long, but for a while it was just huge fun. I mean, yeah. so different from Hearts and Minds, or where we spent a year and a half you know, kind of trying to really um, penetrate a complicated social issue. Shooting music was just like a like a a drug, you know, a dream. It was yeah. fun. Hearts and Minds, um, which is an extraordinary film. I just rewatched it a, a couple of weeks ago. So so the the level of your involvement in that it 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 it, it did last a long period of time. Yeah, and and uh we created Peter Davis uh there's no question Peter Davis, this is Peter Davis's film, but he created a team um, with and sort of credited myself and Tom Cohen as being kind of, a, you know, associate producers. I forget what the technical credit was. Um, so that we were kind of making the film together, the three of us, um, for a year and a half. And then my wife at the time, who I, I didn't know, who was hired to edit it, um, you know, was in California and we were in New York and in Vietnam and all that. Um, we were to meet on that film. Oh, wow. So that's a very special yeah. film for you. Yeah, it is. For <laughs> <both of them. laughs> 
Yeah. You know, I think and it's of, still it's still a, it's still a shocking film to see. Uh, yeah. Uh, when you know, if you, if you if you, I mean, you saw it recently. A lot of people see it as kind of a historical document, but it's. I find it still shocking. It is a, it is an important historical document, and and it's amazing that those stories were were presented in, in the immediate. Uh, in, in the immediacy of that war and the immediate aftermath of that war. And I think that's very valuable because we're used to seeing, you know, kind of reflections of, of those events and, and how they shaped, how they shaped us. But hearts and minds was, it was right in there with them. It, it was also made during the war, which is yes. kind of also not, not after the fact, but right. during the war. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's an extraordinary movie. How did your directorial feature debut? How did that, take shape and, and come about well what happened was after hearts and minds um i decided to to hit the pause button and to try to understand a little more about the world i i had really no idea um coming out of college as a liberal arts um major and a kind of a dewy-eyed filmmaker wannabe and all that uh, that I would be thrown into a into a world um, of political economics and Marxian uh, um, revolution and all of this, and so um, I took I took a year and got a went back to a program where I could sort of try to understand what were the gaps in my education, particularly in economics and history and political economics, and um, and during the course of that, I became fascinated with a story, a story that took place 100 years earlier, and a character uh, that took place, a character from 100 years earlier. Um, and uh, so then, this wasn't going to be done like a documentary. It just wasn't. There wasn't any footage. There wasn't, it was a fiction story. So then I set out to find somebody to write it um, with me, Although really, I wasn't looking to write with somebody. I was looking for somebody to write, who to do things that I couldn't do. And so I sought out Cormac McCarthy, and he, at the time he was a, a sort of reclusive writer um, uh, who had a, had a mailing drop box in uh, in El Paso, Texas, um, and no one really knew where he was. Hmm. And uh, so I sent him. A letter, and we met in New York, and then we met in in uh, Tennessee, where he grew up, and we spent a year working on the script of that first film, uh, first fiction film. And uh, he still, I talk to him every two weeks. He's the godfather of my daughter. We tried to make a number of films afterwards um, during uh, during my career as a Hollywood director. Nobody would touch uh, a Cormac McCarthy script, um, so it was kind of a wild ride. Wow! Uh, it was called The Gardener's Son, and it's a very strange movie, um, as you expect with a Cormac McCarthy script. Yeah, he'd never read he'd never uh, written a script before, so we both were learning. Well, I think of your your works, and the, the, there's movies like uh, Heartland and Country and. And even some elements of No Mercy, where there's such a strong sense of place, 
uh, of environment. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk to that about capturing an, an environment in, in your films, the spirit of a location. Is that a major yeah, concern? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I can say that it's one of the things that um, I, I struggle with in regard to The Gardener's Son, because I was trying to create a mill village in, in the post-Civil War reconstruction, and it was you know, you could find the, you could find the, the architectural elements. You could find the, 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 the sort of mill and the, and the housing for the mill workers and all that. But to make it feel like it was really lived in was really hard. Mm. And, and and it was, and I don't know if I succeeded uh, in that. Um, just the way, if I was to be very brutal with myself, I felt like. When I when I got to doing a, a fiction film, everything that I'd learned up to then about how to shoot handheld and how to how to ca- capture an event on the fly in the moment, I put aside, and I and I trusted my DP at the time. His name was Fred Murphy, and I and I trusted him to the point where it, quite early on in the first day's shooting, he realized that I was not even looking through the lens. I was so. Um, concerned with with not stepping on his toes and his area and that I, I sort of knew the shot but I was I was letting him be the guy that looks through the lens so he finally stopped me and said Dick you've got to look through the lens you can't make a decision until you've looked through the lens and I laughed and I realized he was right um, so so that in a sense the 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 transition from me being a a very comfortable and skilled documentary cameraman to a uh, fiction film director was not as it was not seamless. It was an important film because that then led to these two wonderful women coming from Montana to my New York apartment and saying, "We have this idea of making a TV show, a TV movie uh, about uh, the story of this woman who was a." mail-order bride and um at the turn of the century and um we all became fast friends and that project i eventually talked them into making it into a 35 millimeter feature film rather than a tv but that essentially uh that came about because they'd seen the gardener's son okay but Heartland is such a gorgeous movie. I, I, I rewatched that a few weeks ago too, as I was as I knew that I was going to talk to you. Well, uh, now that's talk about a sense of place. That yes. is a film that was informed by uh, and and sort of the the gift of that film for me in many ways was the work of Patrizia von Brandenstein, who it was her first Gardner's Son was her first film. Uh, she was a production designer um, and an artist, but but when when Heartland came out, she just she just created every object in mm. that movie, every object, every every sort of thing you see in that in that cabin uh, is chosen with 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 such care, and she she is such an such an extraordinary collaborator. Um, I've worked with her every time I could, and and she went on to to do Cuckoo's Nest and you know a bunch of Milos Forman films, uh, and is is you know right you know one of the great um, production designers 
in the movie business uh, alive today. Um, and, and talk about an environment that Phil's lived in. I mean, that 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 is one. Uh, yes, yeah. and that's and that you, in a way, I, I'll never forget the moment when I realized the difference between a good production designer and a great production designer. And the, the difference in some ways is so simple. You go onto a set, you've talked it all out, and you've, you've sort of done drawings, and you've done everything you can do as a director. And then you come onto a set, and you just wonder at the uh, specificity of every choice. And then you open a drawer, and there's nowhere in the script that the, that the drawer is opened. Mm. You open the drawer, and there are letters from the of the person. There are objects that they, and it's only on the chance that someone might open the drawer. Yeah, it's 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 just awe inspiring. And she was my first introduction to that kind of um, creative production designer. Yeah, I mean, I I would imagine that it, it it it's the same with actors as well. I mean, it's the things that you you don't see or you don't show that inform the reality for yeah. you uh, and, and by extension, the audience as well. The, the uh, Rip Torn you worked with in Heartland and right. <laughs> he was an actor of such immense power and also from reading accounts over the years, a very colorful man as well. Uh, what was your experience like working with him? Well, I think as a young director, I had no, uh, I had no idea of what uh, working with Riptorn was going to involve, and so uh, I always say that I cut my teeth on on <laughs> Rip, and that in fact every every time I've worked with some, somebody who is described as a difficult actor in in a lifetime of directing, uh, I've always smiled and said nothing compares to Rip. <laughs> 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 Nothing compares, and I don't think he had any idea. I just think he—he's just an unconscious, wonderful uh, kind of uh, like when he first came to meet in, in New York. Uh, it wasn't an audition; it was a meeting. Um, we spent the entire—he spent the entire meeting talking about a brawl he'd been in the night before at a bar, and um, if that wasn't, in a way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sending me a message. I don't know how, he, how else he could have. <laughs> yeah, it must have felt like kind of a boot camp for a director to to go through the Rip Torn experience. Well, you know what? I did. I, the, the film was oddly celebrated at yeah. the Montana Film Festival this year, this last fall. Oh wow! And oh, so oh. I went. I went, and uh, oh, there was a sort of mini reunion, mostly of Montana people, and. We had fun, and it was a kind of a small, uh, unpretentious festival, and it was the last night of the festival. It was kind of a meant to be a tribute to, to Heartland. And I went to some trouble to get a good a color print that was somewhere that somebody had preserved. And so I watched the film for the first time in maybe, I don't know how many years. I, I swear to God, it may have been a quarter century since I'd seen the film. And... Um, and I was moved by Rip Torn. Yes. <laughs> he, he, I had not been able to get beyond how difficult he had made my life during that film, to be frank. Um, so that I, I, the whole film ex making experience was, was all filtered by that. And then mm. 25 years later, I'm looking at the nuanced, subtle, 
kind of sweet uh, performance uh, of this man who is anything but nuanced, sweet, and subtle. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he he might have been a pain in the ass, but he was a great artist. I mean, he really he really was. And I can tell you one story. Please, I, I, I can tell you one story that um, we were about halfway through uh, shooting, and it was. As, as you remember, we went from, you know, in spring contains blizzards and green up and everything in that film. We, it's as if you'd been there for the entire year, mm. but it's all happening in a few weeks, a few short weeks in in spring. And we we were, there was only one trailer and everybody would kind of go down to the basement of this little little cabin uh, to get out of the wind or the cold or whatever. So we had a difficult, we had a difficult morning and uh, Rip and I went at each other and uh, I just thought, we're never going to get through this. You know, this is just, um, this is just getting increasingly difficult to get even um, anything shot. Um, he'd, he'd stormed off. I, I had gone out I'd gone outside and I was sort of walking with Mike Hausman, who was my partner and producer on this. And uh, I was saying, I didn't, I just didn't have a, I haven't, I have no clue as to what to, what to do about this, how to, how to repair the damage that's being done every day uh, to this relationship. Um, and uh, Mike was, he was done. He, he, he knew it, but he didn't know what to do. And then this <laughs> cockamamie idea came into my mind. Uh, we had this scene that was kind of like a, part of a montage of ranch life that was really just a kind of pick up stuff to get mm-hmm. so that we would have material for the for the editing room about about ranch life in the turn of the century in Wyoming. And um, um, this was a scene involving uh, slaughtering a pig, shooting a pig and dressing it and doing all the stuff you do on a farm uh, to end up with pork, you know. And so I turned to Mike and I said, we had we had two pigs. We had what we called the rent-a-pig and we had the shoot-a-pig. The rent-a-pig was the pig that was in the shots and was kind of kept fed and happy. <laughs> the shoot-a-pig was going to be the pig that we were going to actually kill and dress and, and eat. We would eventually eat the the pig in a big celebratory um, meal, and so we had that was all part of the schedule. But it was kind of <laughs> late, late in the schedule. Um, so I said, "Do we have the shoot a pig?" <laughs> and Mike said, "Yeah." He said, "Do we have everything else we need? Do we have the the rifle and the whatever and the you know? Can we dress? Can we do the scene right now?" And uh, he said, "Yeah." And then I went to Fred Murphy, who was the same DP, uh, and I said, Fred, look, I want you to trust me on this. I want to shoot this handheld. I don't know what's going to exactly happen, but I, I think you have, to, you have to just trust that I can, I can handle shooting it myself. And he said, fine. And so we got all together, and uh, Rip was called to the set, and um, he arrived at the set to see me there standing with a camera, handed him this rifle and he said and he explained to him I don't remember what I actually said but I remember explaining to him that 
we we're going to jump to a scene uh, that we was scheduled for later, but it's going to be you and Jack. The other character's name is Jack. You and Jack are going to kill this pig, and you're going to dress him and strip him of his skin, and you're going to boil him, and you're going to do everything you do. So we spent the entire afternoon. And by the way, shooting a pig is not easy. A pig, a pig, um, unless you are lucky and hit it right dead in the brain, uh, it just shrieks and howls and runs around and there's blood everywhere, which is what happened. And the whole afternoon, by the end of the afternoon, we were all covered with blood. Uh, and the scene is still evokes, it's in the, a version of the scene is in the film and it's still, yeah. it infuriates, um, you know, the kind of people who, who would that scene would infuriate uh, and i always have to explain and it's kind of a lame excuse that we that we ate <laughs> the pig but um at the end of the at the end of the day whatever anger whatever uh difficulties that rip and i were having were gone really okay yeah, it it just gone. it just took him killing something in order to <laughs> exercise Maybe, that. I always felt like the contract between us was never specifically said, but it was honored, and that was he was being asked to do things that were very difficult mm-hmm. as as a rancher in Montana in the turn of the century. Um, they were difficult for him. He's an urban kid, really. Even though he's from Texas, Montana, Texas, he's really he's not a rancher. Uh, and the and the contract was, I will not settle until you feel you've done it well, whatever it is. Um, and I will keep shooting until you get it right. Uh, and it, it, would, it was never said between us, but that's what won him over to me, mm. is that I never said, look, Rip, we got to move on. That's as good as we're going to get it. You you really can't, you know, I don't know what whatever it would have been, you know, whether it's it's roping a calf or it's sticking your arm up inside a cow. You 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 know he he had to know that I wouldn't settle until it was right. Yeah, and and that's what saved what could have been a very difficult, disastrous. Um, piece of casting on my part mm. yeah he's extraordinary in the film and and i know i'm jumping around a bit but that that raises a a point about performance to me uh you know there's an element of it that's very mysterious and one of my favorite stories about directing actors you talk about the great nuance of rip torn's performance uh was was from dennis hopper he was talking about working with robert duvall I know that story. Yeah, I know, story. and that he it's a great did. Story. He did not see it. Uh, That's right. Right up close. And, and Duval said, uh, "You're not in any relationship to Bob Duval, are you?" I interviewed him years ago, and we kind of tried to peel it away, and I don't think I am, <laughs> ultimately. But yeah. But that's a great story because because he's absolutely right, uh, and and every you know, and, and Duval knows enough and has the confidence to know. That he, he says, he's saying essentially, trust me, it's there. Uh huh. So when, but when you and you worked with Duval, obviously on. Uh... Yeah, Duval had. I have to say, it, this is a, a sort of tooting my own horn, and it's so funny because I can't even remember the specifics. But there was a moment when we were doing um, 
a family thing. Um, we had talked about working together for a, for a number of years, and we finally did. And there was a moment when we were shooting, and I came over to a car he was in and the scene, and he was he was struggling a little bit or whatever. And uh, so I said something to him, and uh, walked away. We shot the scene. He came over to me later, and he said, "Dick, that was the single best direction I've ever gotten in my life." Mm. Now, you'd want to know what that direction yes, was? Yes. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's the point. That maybe it wasn't so much genius. But he, you know, uh, one other version of that story, which I will tell you, which is not involved with Robert Duvall, but involved with Donald Sutherland. Mm -hmm. I worked with Donald Sutherland on a film called Threshold. Uh, to this day, I still uh, love the film, but particularly love the experience of working with Sutherland, uh, and, the, and the story goes, we're on day one, and uh, he's just come off from working with Fellini. Uh, you may remember he did, uh, what was it, um, the film about the... Oh, 1900, the Bertolucci? No, it wasn't Bertolucci, it was Fellini. But in any case, um, it, we can look it up. But uh, So he, he was not just a big star, and a wonderful character, but also, you know, a veteran of yeah. a, a world that I, you know, take me back to the cinema, you know, the notion of going to Rome and studying under somebody like that. You know what I mean? Or yeah. Being around with films of Cinecitta, it was it was like uh, awe-inspiring. So, long story short, first day, first scene is between. Mayor Winningham and Donald Sutherland, and it's kind of, as always, a scene that's not uh, an insignificant scene. It's kind of late in the late in the film, and we are shooting it for whatever reason as the first day's work, and it's always a little daunting. You'd love to be able to throw your first day's work out if you had all the power and all the money. So we're starting we're starting with a, a, an important scene, and. Um, Again, Donald Sutherland is sort of doing the scene, and something is not happy with me. And I, um, I don't know how to say anything because I'm a little intimidated, mm -hmm. and I, I, and I'm struggling, and I'm struggling to figure out what to say, as you, as you would as a director, because you can't just say again, <laughs> unless you're Kubrick, and and so finally. At about the nineteenth take, uh, I realize I'm getting I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble, uh, and so I call a break and uh, send everybody in the crew. They were on location in the hospital, and and send everybody in the crew for coffee. And uh, I go into the next little room to where our set was, and I sit down, and I'm thinking I got to figure this out, you know. I, if I can't figure this out, I shouldn't be doing this. You know what I mean? That mm -hmm. kind of moment mm -hmm. when you're where you're really look, looking into the abyss. And uh, so Donald Dumbledore doesn't go for coffee. He's he sort of suddenly appears in the door, comes over, and sits down next to me. And there's silence, and I don't feel any better. I feel like, well, you know, he's probably waiting for me to say something <laughs> smart. <laughs> uh, 
And um, there's a long, pregnant pause, and he turns to me, turns to me, and he smiles, and he said, "I love this. It, this, this is. I haven't had much as this much fun since Fellini." And and you know what he was essentially saying is, "I hate it when people settle." Yes. I hate it when people are phony. I hate it when people say, that's great, that's beautiful, you know, that's, that's marvelous. Now, let's, can we do it again, you know? Uh, and he had a lot of that in his life. And here I was. I wasn't getting it right. I didn't know what to say. I was really upset, but I wasn't settling. Mm. And, uh, and so I felt somehow completely, you know, validated uh, and we went back to work, and we got it, and we got it. Uh, we figured it out. I lost my my fears in some ways, um, and the film's really good, and I, I'm very proud of it. And Donald Sutherland's work in it is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in a sense, that was one of those moments as a director where you go, you know, after that, I I really knew I I had the chops. I could do it. Yeah, that's a great story, you know. And and I I think about the the director actor relationship, and it must be, it must feel like a delicate dance at times because I mean my favorite actor is Al Pacino, uh, and and <laughs> <You're>... <laughs> when I when I see some of his movies, I can tell that whoever was directing was almost afraid of directing him, be, because he cared. You know, yeah. because he care, he's Al Pacino. What am I going to tell? He's bouncing. He's bouncing off the walls a lot of the time. <laughs> Yeah, but and I also you, yeah. Uh, yeah I also think that uh, it, you know it takes some actors uh, love love direction. Give me something. Don't just, just okay. Can I tell you one more story? Sure. Uh, this is from Long Walk Home. Yes. And uh, Sissy Spacek will forever also be one of those people that I treasure having had a chance to work with. And so it was Sissy Spacek and Whoopi Goldberg. And they were like oil and water. And they were meant to be like oil and water, in a sense. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg was terrified that the film would sentimentalize this relationship between a black employee and a white southern woman. And she was tough as nails. She just didn't want to have, for a moment, let anything sentimental leak into this um, film and into, into her performance. Okay, so... And on the other and on the other hand, she also wasn't really a natural actress. Uh, she, she was more of a personality. So she would be she would have the totally appropriate fear that if she started to rehearse something, that that she would lose it mm. in the rehearsal, and then it would never be on film. It was something that she didn't feel like she had control over the process, and that she was it was you know going to be in not up to her whether she could keep keep kind of uh, that something would some magic would happen with the camera rolling and I, I completely understand that feeling but Sissy Spacek was the opposite she was a, a, a consummate crafts person and she wanted to rehearse and so that she got really comfortable with all the staging and all the business and where things were and what the movement was so that then she could kind of she could let herself go into the uh, sort of deep issues of performance. Mm-hmm. So both sides are completely right, and no one's except that they're. It puts me in an impossible situation. 
because Whoopi does not want to rehearse at all, and Sissy Spacek <laughs> uh, wants to rehearse as much as she can. And, you know, it's just, what am I going to do? Um, so we get to the big the big scene, uh, well, not the big scene, but a very emotional scene where um, Sissy Spacek's character has to kind of open herself to this maid, Whoopi Goldberg's this maid, who um, up until then uh, it had been a totally formal relationship, and she's now going to she's going to speak from her heart. And um, we go through a couple of takes, and and uh, Sissy's completely upset, and I can see it, and I can see also why, because Whoopi is just freezing her out. Uh, and you don't even have to have Whoopi on camera. It's just that it was just, uh, it was kind of an impossible situation. Uh, we hadn't rehearsed it, so no one knew. So I remember um, calling Whoopi Goldberg aside and saying to her, and this is where I do remember the words, I said to her, you're like someone, it's as if there's someone on a high diving board and you are under control of the amount of water in the pool, and you just drain the pool. Mm. And Whoopi burst into tears. Whoopi Goldberg, mm. tough as nails. She burst into tears. She knew exactly what she had done, what she'd been doing. You you were, you came up in a time uh, when um, very uh, socially conscious films were at the forefront. And as I'm thinking about it, as the 70s kind of went into the 80s and a whole different class of corporate filmmaking took over, it, was it difficult to 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 cre- create socially conscious films to keep that trend going in your career? I don't I don't know if I was consciously setting out to make socially conscious films or whether the films the projects sort of came my way. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in both country and in Long Walk Home, the films were started by other uh, different directors, and I, I, they were, they, they very quickly uh, realized the director was a mistake, and they called me, and I had to come in in a situation where, in both cases, and those, uh, so I, I feel a little bit like, um, like, like I remember thinking to myself, well. I don't, you know, when No Mercy came along, I thought, well, maybe this will be a good thing for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, maybe it'll be a change. Uh, maybe I'll learn something about myself. Um, but I struggled against the genre uh, film uh, just because that was in my nature. But it doesn't mean that I said, oh, I'm, I'm going to use the filmmaking as a soapbox. Right, right. But but that, that No Mercy is an interesting movie in your career, because it it, it does feel a, a kind of of a, a di- of a different ilk. It's 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 more of a sweltering, warish kind of movie. Yeah. Was that was that a happy experience for you making that? Um, it was. It, it really was fun, and Richard Gere was a pleasure, and Kim Bassinger. That there was no. There's no sort of. Uh, there's no ostensible difficulties. It's just a different kind of movie where you're you're sort of 
you're working in a genre mode where you're you're just talking about filmmaking style. Mm-hmm. You're not you're not kind of trying to go to a deeper place. And uh, I guess I always I always felt like could I could I make a noir, which you'd gear with a gun kind of cop movie, <laughs> yeah. w- which would take us to a, diff- a deeper place, and people do it, and I just didn't feel like I was able to do it on that movie, even though technically the movie's accomplished, and I know I can I can make that kind of movie if I want to. Did I would I want to do it again? No. Mm. Well, you talked about uh, taking over directing duties for 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 other people in a couple of your films, and. Yeah, I think uh, about uh, the the directors I've talked to who have done episodic television, and a lot of them are in a position where they're they're walking into an already established family. Yeah, that's right. Oh, the, it's a big it's yeah. a big issue with with television, and that's why actually more and more they really aren't bringing in outsiders. More and more of of limited series television are all being done by one director, and it's great. Mm. They're like they're like kind of novels uh, as opposed to short stories. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, the TV has taken over in a big way, and I'm wondering your thoughts on um, the currency of the feature yeah. film. I think now. television is just, it's just wild to see what what television has become. And, uh, and you're going to have to be the one who speaks to why that is, um, because I started doing television when... Um, you know, I mean, I was I was lucky in a way. Um, there were there was good television. Homicide was really interesting, and mm-hmm. I got to create a series called Party of Five. Um, and there was you know uh, nothing sacred. There were challenging challenging TV movies, and um, the Final Days was a wonderful. Uh, I'm very uh, proud oh, of. Oh I, yes. Movie the, about the Nixon, Nixon and yeah. Nixon's final days, and you know these things are all these these things were all on the cusp of of a change in TV, but they were part of the old world of TV. Um, and 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 the new world of TV is just staggering. What what's being accomplished for the small screen? It is. But yeah. it, but it also leaves you thinking, you know, what are movies now? What what is the currency of the of the feature film, and then compound right. that a, with compound that, that with what's happening the, to theaters? You know, what, where are I know, we? No, no. And I do feel like what you're what you're implying, if not saying it, is that somehow feature films sort of got um, uh, sort of took a turn toward not just corporate, but also towards tentpole and kind of big, um, you know, popular entertainment. Amusement movies. rides. And there's, yeah. and there's no there's no quarrel with that. It's just that the, the middle ground movie that used to be, um, you know, the studios would, would sort of cultivate a middle, a middle budget movie for potential Oscar bait and all that. You know, those, those movies are very, very hard to make. They're on TV now. <laughs> and they're being made for, and they're being made for TV. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's one movie that we never discussed which was Leap of Faith, but I I got to tell you that's another film of yours that I just adore. That's a film that's had a real life, oddly. It and has. Even, yeah. It it's it's somehow people remember it and people uh, uh and and uh you know the the sort of 
sad thing about that film is that it was a it was in for whatever reason it was Paramount's Christmas movie of that year, mm-hmm. and and poor Steve Martin, they people wanted him to be Happy Go Lucky Steve. You know what I mean? They wanted him to be the Steve Martin from you know Father of the Bride, and uh, you know I think it, it, I think it hurt him, and he never did. He never really did any more acting, where he was not just kind of playing into that audience pocket. You know? Yeah, that's true. Outside of Shop Girl, uh, which I think Shop Girl, right, which good. is a different story because that's his novel and right. that's a different. But but in fact, um, I think he kind of quietly decided to become a writer and not right. be an actor. So tell me my last question for you. You've been so generous with your sure. time. Uh, do do you feel like you still? I mean, obviously you're still working on projects, so you feel like you still have something to say, something to to get out of you. I don't know if I would. I don't know if I would see it that way. What I can I can sort of put it a little differently, but I think maybe you're getting at something, and that is, you know, as I began to realize that the films that I wanted to make that I was kind of attempting to get made we're having a harder and harder time um, getting made. Um, and then suddenly I got a call. I got a call uh, that they're looking for feature film directors to do a documentary series on the blues. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and, they, and each, they're, they're giving you a night, each, each of us a night on public television. And all it has to do is be about the blues. Uh, Paul Allen is going to pay for all the music rights. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a, it's a good budget. You don't have to worry about music. Just put as much music in as you want um, and make an interesting film about the blues. Um, and I was in. I was bought, sold. I just loved it. And I was traveling around with, with an old blues musician on a bus in the South, um, living the life of the 50s. Um, we were kind of looking deeply into the Mississippi-Memphis kind of um, diaspora and the story of what happened to, to black blues musicians who came to Memphis. Um, it's called The Road to Memphis. It was hugely fun. Um, it was one of six, I think. Uh, Marty Scorsese was the host. He did one of them. The um, vendors, there are a bunch of people Clint Eastwood. It was a really good company. It was a lot of fun and it sort of reintroduced me to documentary and I've sort of never looked back. I mean, I'm writing. I've written a script, and I'm, um, I'm, you know, I'm not kind of completely out of the fiction world, but for the most part, I am. And so, what that's meant is that documentary, uh, the sort of surprises of documentary, have meant that I've been working on a number of of kind of long-range projects that that are that I'm shooting because I can do it and they don't involve having to spend a lot of time raising money. Right. Some of them are casualties of that process. Some of them are still in play. Um, and, and in other cases, I'm just signing on to an interesting project and I'm the cameraman. I'm the DP, um, like a recent project uh, on Gustavo Dudamel. I don't know if you're a New Yorker or whether you're aware of this incredible wonderkind uh, conductor who is the head of the L.A. 
Phil right now, but he's also a Venezuelan, and he's an extraordinary young, um, probably one of the great conductors in the world. And so I just got to spend time mm. over a year and a half with Gustavo Dudamel dealing with his life, his music, and, and Venezuela. And I, I can't imagine anything. I, I mean, this wasn't my film. This is a, a film um, being made by a guy named Ted Braun. But I'm uh, I'm at right where I want to be, right behind the camera, right there at every step. That's beautiful. And, and there was another cameraman as well, Buddy Squires, who's sort of a well-known documentary cameraman. And suddenly, um, I'm, I'm working with Buddy, even though we're not working in the same scenes. We are... We are both kind of veteran cameramen, and I'm feeling great. 